Welcome to Curbside Consults, where we break down study design and statistical methods in studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Amanda Fernandez. I'm, I'm Dr. Angela Chen. And I'm Dr. Angela Castellanos. And we are this year's editorial fellows of the New England Journal of Medicine. Over the course of the year, we have covered various clinical topics and papers published in the NEJM. We also started a new series covering statistical topics paired with these clinical podcasts. We are now en- nearing the end of our fellowship, but don't worry, curbside consults will continue. But we thought we'd do a special podcast to give our listeners a behind the scenes into the fellowship. Joining us today is our co-host, Dr. Dave Harrington. Dave is statistical editor at the NEJM and Emeritus Professor of Biostatistics at the Harvard School of Public Health. Dave, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. It's good to be here. So not only will our listeners have a chance to learn where these three young people are headed, but so will I. Where are each of you headed next year? I'm Dr. Angela Chen. So I am an Australian-trained endocrinologist, and before starting this fellowship, I was living in Australia. So I'm heading back home and going into a PhD. I'm Amanda, and I'm also by no coincidence an endocrinologist. I finished my fellowship before coming to the NEJM, and I'm heading into Brown to join their endocrine division there. I'd say it is a coincidence that you both are endocrinologists. (laughs) I'm Angela. I'm only non-endocrinology fellow. I am a pediatrician. I just finished my pediatric training before coming to this fellowship, and I'm continuing as a general pediatrician, um, working as a pediatric hospitalist in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Lots of exciting things ahead. Angela, tell us briefly about your responsibilities during the last year. So they've been very varied. I think that's the best word to describe it. Uh, In terms of responsibilities, I think it's been quite a nebulous Uh, description being an editorial fellow, but uh, between the three of us, we've managed to come up. So I think we essentially recast the original studies that are published in NEJM for physicians of all levels. So making the NEJM a resource that's accessible for everyone has been our primary role. So part of that has been in making these podcasts that are aimed at residents and medical students, but also um, other online multimedia type of things, such as writing blog posts about the articles and We work with the arts department to create the QTs and the visual abstracts as well. And then our other responsibilities essentially are just being immersed in the editorial process here at NEJM and seeing how a journal such as NEJM produces its content and edits the original manuscripts that come through. And we also do a bit of editing ourselves in terms of working with the clinical images. And then from time to time, we get special projects dropped in on us and we just do them. Is it what you expected? Uh, Yes and no. I think when they described the editorial fellowship, it was meant to be really broad and very creative. And I think that's been the thing that I've really enjoyed the most, just the creativity that comes from working in this sort of space. I think a lot of times people, particularly when you're just faced with, I guess, clinical research papers or research studies, I would never have thought of it as a very creative thing. But that's the main thing that has been really different about this year and has been unexpected, but in a really good way. Thank you. Angie, what's the most important thing you think you've learned this year? So I've learned a lot of things. So I'm a pediatrician, so I learned a lot about adult internal medicine. (laughs) Um, So that's, I I won't tell you all the details I've learned about cardiovascular disease. But in thinking about this podcast and thinking about what Angela said about really being seeped in the editorial process here, one of the biggest things I've learned is that no trial is perfect. I think that's one of my biggest takeaways. No matter how randomized, no matter how controlled, Um, And a lot of the topics we've brought out on this podcast, I think, have really brought that out for me. So there's always going to be missing data. There's always going to be attrition in trials and loss to follow up. And 
the real important thing is recognizing that in studies and when you're analyzing them and having a sense of what approaches were used to solve these problems and the positives and um, I guess the benefits and risks of using those different approaches. So how can we really think about a study if there's a lot of missing data? You guys just had a great podcast about that as well, where I learned a lot myself. And then using that knowledge of what are the benefits of using this approach, what are the things we need to look out for in using that and interpreting the data itself, and what can this trial answer for us? And I think really, and the questions that we get at in the editorial meetings is like, what questions are left with this trial? What do we still not understand? Mm -hmm. Where is the uncertainty? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think when I first started this fellowship and through my medical training, you don't have a lot of time to really dig into the medical literature. And we kind of always talk about that as residents. We really want more time to do that. You pick up a paper, you look at the p-value, and you try to see if it's positives or negative, and you kind of move on quickly. But this fellowship has really taught me more of the nuance and that the p-value is really a very superficial way of looking at the data, and you really have to look at the whole picture as well. So I think that's really what I took away from this fellowship and one of the most valuable things I've learned, and I'm hoping I can carry that forward into my clinical practice. So from a statistician's perspective, that last statement that the p-value is a superficial way of thinking about the trial means that the year was a resounding success for you. (laughs) Um, Amanda, uh, my impression is that physicians are particularly talented at making things look easy. So what has been the hardest thing for you this year? That is a good question. Uh, I think to kind of echo and carry on what uh, Angela just talked about, as a clinical resident and fellow, um, there's a lot of time that you spend just seeing patients and then trying to apply what evidence base it is to their care. And you don't get a lot of time to actually sit and delve into the literature. And I think this year has been great for developing those skills, but also learning and asking important questions about study design that I might not have asked before. And then, like Dr. Drazen always does, when we're sitting at these meetings, what does this mean for the patient? And taking it back to that, I think, has been Mm -hmm. a very good learning experience, but it's been challenging to, like, learn that process. And I think as the year comes to an end, it's probably taken the full year. I don't even think I've mastered it yet, but Mm -hmm. I've definitely developed important skills that I know that I can still work on this in the future. Do you have advice for people in the field, people working as physicians, of how they might be able to get that kind of information or that background that you've gained here? Well, I think that our statistical podcasts for us have been a great learning experience, and we hope that for people who are listening to them, they are able to also learn a lot from them. And so I think that that's a great starting point. There's a lot of resources that through the NEJAM um, I've learned about. So, for instance, Journal Watch, just in terms of keeping up with literature, it becomes very challenging. And so I think as a trainee, uh, making sure that you're aware of these resources is critically important because in trying to balance clinical duties and then just a good work-life balance is challenging, but making sure that you know what these resources are to stay on top of everything is important. Angela, will you practice medicine differently based on your experiences here? Yeah, so absolutely. And I think to once again echo what um, Angie and Amanda had said, in part, it's because of that kind of rigor that we've had in critically appraising the literature. I think a lot of the times as a resident and even as a fellow, I probably took things a bit for granted and definitely relied on the p-value in a paper far too much than I should have without thinking about the broader implications. So I think 
after this year being in the editorial process, I have become more skeptical of research findings and probably have a better understanding of the nuances and how to think about them in real life circumstances outside of the trial setting. I think that's been particularly important. But then just more broadly, the whole experience of NEJM, and as Amanda was saying, Dr. Drazen always talks about how to take it back to patient outcomes. And you really realize kind of the power of a trial, not just in terms of the clinical implications for the patient, but each trial or each study that is performed has implications for the potential directions that policy goes in, potential directions of guidelines go in, potential directions for future research. And through this experience, you really see the bigger ecosystem of what medical research does and what its value is and why we should be thinking about it more as residents beyond just what the paper results show, which are important in and of themselves. So I think that's something that isn't really spelt out, is not very tangible concept, but has been something that I've found to be particularly valuable throughout this year and just hopefully will continue to use as I move through. Thank you. It's a great perspective. Is there something you learned about endocrinology that might change the way you practice medicine? I think that's been something that has really resounded with me. So to think about the bread and butter things that I do, like diabetes, cardiovascular disease prevention, they are very important and they affect a lot more people, say, than some other rarer disease in endocrinology. And that's been something, I think, that's been a perspective shift for me, and I think it's been really nice. So I've appreciated that. Thank yeah. you. To, to chime in a little bit, I think um, this year we attend these biweekly meetings, and it's very impressive because you have editors that their area of specialty varies. You have our statisticians, and all of them are engaged in this very rich conversation. And sometimes it's not on topics that they're comfortable with. Yeah. Um, it's out of their expertise area. But it's just been an eye-opening experience to see that happen. And I think that's been a learning process. And Dave, you've been part of some of those conversations where for us as uh, trainees and learners watching that, it's just been just a great experience to watch because I think what it's really taught me as well is that sometimes you really need to step back and you look at a paper and really there are these basic questions you need to ask about what it means. You don't necessarily, just because you're in a subspecialty, you tend to get a little narrow-minded, but sometimes you need to step back. You can still uh, have good comments to make on papers that you don't even have expertise on. Mm. One of the uh, fascinating aspects of those conversations is how often they start with a physician saying, well, we don't know the best way to treat this disease. And Mm. then the discussion will then go rather more deeply into a paper that may be suggesting another way to treat a disease. Mm. Angie, tell us what you've learned about research and whether you've changed your view of research beyond discarding the superficial p-value? I think one of my biggest lessons about research in general is that the medical literature and research is a conversation and it's an ongoing conversation. Sometimes these conversations can take years to play out because that's how long it takes to design, implement, analyze, and publish a trial. So a trial will ask a question and have a result and someone based on that question or a subgroup analysis in that question will say, you know, maybe there's something here, maybe there was a signal and they want to pick up that question and move forward. And I know we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, subgroup analyses this year and just watching kind of that conversation play out. um, What's been great about these editorial meetings that we've talked about is when people are engaging in topics that aren't in their area of expertise, they say, this is where the medical literature started and this is how we got to the point that we are with this question. So that's kind of to that point where you were talking about when 
we say, this is how we've been treating something, a disease for a while, but maybe we don't have the best evidence to show why we've been doing that. So maybe that's the, this is the time to answer that question. So that the medical literature is an ongoing conversation. It's really important to understand where that question came from, why we're asking those questions, why we are in a point of the evidence-based practices where we are at now, mm -hmm. and how those questions kind of propagate future research. I think Angela was talking about that earlier. And then if once we do talk about this conversation and this conversation goes on for years, um, the nitty-gritty really makes me appreciate how hard it is to design, perform, yeah. analyze a clinical trial. At every step, there are challenges, there are problems. And then when you, as a trainee, kind of reduce it to the abstract, you really lose sight of how thoughtful and how difficult it was to actually perform this study. And I think the other thing about research is that while people are conducting research and you're designing a study, you're exposing people to risk when you are exposing people mm -hmm. to new treatments or you're exposing people to um, two different arms of a trial where you don't really know exactly what's going to help them. So the other thing that we keep coming back to is how does this affect the patient is really understanding that clinical trials are about trying to do our best to answer a question, but trying to do it in a very safe and efficient and helpful way to make sure we get the best results for the patients. So um, just a lot of appreciation for the world of the clinical trial and other kinds of trials too. I think we've talked about database research as well, but how much thought and care goes into all this work to be able to have a meaningful and interpretable result. Has the year caused you to rethink the role of research in your own career as you go forward? As fellows, we have, like Angela said, we try to make the research more accessible to trainees and the New England Journal of Medicine readership are physicians, but there's also the public. So we all look at the studies and we have our nuanced analysis and then we open our emails and we have the headlines, the headlines that kind of like boil these studies down to yes or no, positive or negative without really addressing the nuances. And for myself, in terms of how research plays into my role, I think I feel, especially as a pediatrician, a bigger mission to interpret this research for families as well. So not necessarily participating in the world of clinical trials or research, but really participating in how we communicate these results to the people that these um, results are affecting. So Amanda, it might seem odd for someone who is in their training to become embedded in a situation that doesn't necessarily have a clinical component. So would you recommend this to other fellows who might apply for this position versus a more traditional fellowship in a cardiology department or an endocrinology department? Yeah, good question. I think when we all first started here, we've all had the experience where uh, we had to explain to someone what we were doing for the year. And uh, the question invariably was, what are you doing? What is an editorial fellowship? And why are you doing this? Um, and at the beginning of the year, the answer to that question was a little nebulous because we were still discovering what we were doing for the year. But I have to say, 12 months later, this has been a fantastic experience. It's been life-changing. It's been uh, a great learning experience just to uh, do all the different things that this fellowship entails. It's really hard to sum it up, you know, from the editorial meetings to working on these podcasts with you. It's been just an awesome experience to developing summaries and blog posts and visual abstracts. It's just been a great learning experience. And I think it's actually been uh, one of the best experiences I've had. So I can highly recommend it to uh, trainees who are considering a different direction in their training for a year. And 
if they're interested in learning how to become better clinicians, I think this is an awesome opportunity. So it might seem counterintuitive because you're not doing clinical work, but I think what you're getting better at is interpreting the evidence and translating that to care for your patients. And so I think in a way, even though it's not a clinical fellowship, it's helped me a lot, and I'm sure yeah, the other absolutely. fellows yeah. uh, can chime in on that as well. So yeah, it's, yeah. Been, it's been awesome. I think it's important for me to add that you've brought a lot to this, and I've learned an enormous amount uh, through our conversations about not only statistics, but about clinical research generally, and it's been a wonderful experience to work with you and to work on these podcasts. And we hope it has given our listeners a little bit of a taste of what the fellowship is like, what the things we have learned, and passing it on to a wider audience as well. So thank you to Angela and Amanda, my co-fellows, and Dave for joining us on this special wrap-up episode of Curbside Consult. So thank you for listening to this podcast. It's safe to say our statistical knowledge has grown. We want to make sure that you know that Curbside Consult will live on. There's another group of editorial fellows joining the team, and you will learn their voices over the next year as well. We also want to thank our production team here at NEJM Resident 360, Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hammondvik. We are passing the baton to the next year's group of fellows, but want to just say thank you so much to our listeners. This has been an amazing experience, and please tune in for the next episode of Curbside Consults.